Hey, it's so good to be here with you as we continue on in this series. Um, a couple quick things real quick. I uh, had an overwhelming response last week. We talked about nine different, I was about to hold up eight and realize that wasn't unwise. It was nine, nine different pieces of wisdom that we learned from Solomon and the book of Proverbs. And what I loved about it is I heard about it from people on social media. A few people showed up uh, to the church. Uh, some people asked for my advice. I said, I can go find you someone wise. And if they're not here, I can give you some advice. And so I tried that. And then I heard other people who, who did that with other others. They found someone who was farther ahead and wiser than they were. And I love that you guys uh, took that advice. And can I tell you like a secret of me as a communicator? Lots of people communicate. Uh, if you're a business person, you have to you know, make a presentation. Or if you're a parent and you have to tell your, your kid for the hundredth time you know, what to do. Uh, lots of us are communicators. I'm just a, a different type of communicator. But let me tell you about the best day for me as a communicator. Here, here's what happens. It's never, hey, you're so smart. Hey, thank you for teaching something I've never heard of. Hey, thank you for explaining the Bible in a way that I've never known. None of that is my goal. You know what my goal is? It's when someone comes up and says, I understood what you said. I understood what you wanted me to do, and I'm going to go do that. And so last week, it gave me all the warm fuzzies because people, they didn't come up and say, hey, thanks for explaining something that I didn't understand. They said, I took the advice, and I'm going to get a little bit better and wiser at life. And so that gave me all the warm fuzzies. Today's going to be a little bit different. Today is less about advice, and today is kind of a two-part message in the book of Job. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what I want to do is I want to continue this celebration train uh, that Pastor Roy kind of started off with. And so I wanted to talk about a few different things to celebrate. You know, we did a car show last week, and we had 75 cars. We raised $2,600 for senior care ministry, which was amazing. And so... It's a pretty cool thing because not only do we get to have fun, uh, we get to watch um, other people's cars and just kind of look and man and dream and, and, and say, man, how much would you sell that for? Would you accept $5? But most of us, you know, would not do that. Um, and we got to drool. There was a lot of drooling. But also we raised uh, money for a good cars. And Kelly, and who's our, our director over this, you know, she wants to make sure that people who are of the experienced age set make sure that they get the care um, and to be seen uh, as well. And so many, many churches churches, um, you know, tend to go after a younger demographic. And when you're older, you go, where does that leave a place for me? So Kelly is making sure we do that. Thank you, Kelly, for doing that. And then we had students camp at Hume Lake. You know, one of the people... Part of the reason that churches often go after a younger demographic is not because we only want those people. It's often the generation after us that we're the most concerned about. What is their faith going to look like? Um, do we pass down our values? But more importantly, anything else, do we introduce them to relationship with Jesus? Do we cultivate that relationship? And so our student director, Tyler, took a bunch of uh, students to camp, um, and 18 students decided to follow Jesus or make a recommitment, and nine decisions resulted in them wanting to get baptized. And so that is something to celebrate and something that has eternal ramifications. And so even if the number was one, it means in eternity they will be with Jesus. And now they also want to reflect God's love and his righteousness, his holiness to the world. And then we talked about this one a little bit already. Holly, who is uh, the director over all this, she had the 372 students. Her goal was to get to 300 students provided for and sponsored. And so obviously we did way more than that. And that was how much of the support we raised, 74, 40. So thank you for doing that. 
And the reason we do that is not to give ourselves a pat on the back. It's to say that, you know, Sundays are important and we love what we do here. But a lot of the most important stuff happens outside of this platform and this room. And so we want to make sure to never lose that, that I love teaching, I love teaching the Bible, and I love that you guys are in groups and everything. But man, all this stuff really matters. And we need to take time to celebrate that as well. So I'm going to make kind of a hard turn here and go from celebration to probably the biggest question that most people ask when they talk about a relationship with God and also as they read the Bible. And the title of this message is called Bad Things and Good People. And the question that we probably all have heard, have asked ourselves, have seen or heard from a non-Christian or even as a Christian ourselves, or maybe we're teetering on the edge and we're like, we're not sure, I'm not sure that I want to be in and I'm not sure I want to follow God is this question right here. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does that happen? You know, there are a lot of reasons for this, but the book of Job is going to highlight some very big details. Again, this is part one of a two-part message because Job is just so long, it's hard to do in one uh, fell swoop. But I'm going to do my best to cover about 32 chapters in 30 minutes, which is ambitious and stupid at the same time, but we're going to do it. So let's do it. But the interesting thing is we have to get something out of the way on the front end, and it's this. If there is no God, there is no answer to this question. This is a basic assumption of this question. And here's what I mean by that, just to get a little philosophical for a second, more so theological than anything else. If there is no ultimate standard of good, then there's no reason for us to think that anything is good, and there's no, no, no corollary, or there's no way or lens for us to see that something bad has happened to us. And so basically, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are a believer in a God or some type of God, or maybe just some moral kind of universe out there, is that you cannot think of good and bad unless you think that there is a supreme being somewhere out there whose standard and character and idea for all of creation is that there is a good standard and a bad standard. Because if everything is relative, is there, if there is no God, everything is relative. I often have this conversation every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, I'll talk with someone, they'll find out what I do, and sometimes, you know, they're kind of poking me a little bit. They're like, how do you believe that stuff? And I'm kind of like, how do you not? Like, there's all sorts of reasons to believe. And we start talking about things like morality, and I often say, hey, um, would it be bad if I stole your wallet? And they're like, yeah. And they, and I say, well, why is that? And they said, well, it's, it's illegal to do that. And I was like, okay, what if our laws didn't say that? Would it still be bad? Like, yeah, stealing is wrong. And I would say, well, according to who? I said, well, according to, to me. And I say, well, stealing would really help me out. And so it's great for me. So which one of us is right? Is it you that's right? Is it your standard? Is it my standard? And imagine that's just two people who can't agree. You multiply that by the 7 billion or so people who are on there on the earth and you get all sorts of standards. And so what happens really quickly is it can be really confusing is who's right, what's right, and what's wrong. And so to start to answer this question, we have to come from this basis, is if when people ask, why do bad things happen to good people, there must be some ultimate standard that we appeal to. We feel that somewhere or something out there should be able to say, this way is right and this way is wrong. But this isn't really the question that we're asking, if we're honest with ourselves. This is not the question. The question you and I are asking is this one. What we're really asking is this, why did God let this happen to me? 
That's the real question. That's the personal question. See, the last one is philosophical. And philosophers are annoying sometimes. They just ask a bunch of questions. They never get anywhere. But this one is personal. This one is, why did God let this happen to me? This one is, there are some meat on this bones, meaning we, we have a reason we're asking this because some sort of suffering or tragedy or something that we did not see coming has affected us or someone we love to a degree that we begin to look at an ultimate standard. And for people who believe in God, they go, God, why, why, why? Why did you let this happen to me? And a lot of times... We, we want three things from this, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But in order to answer this question, we're going to go to the book of Job. Now, Job's kind of an interesting book uh, for a couple different reasons, and I'll comment on it as we read scripture. But Job isn't quite chronologically in the right place of the Bible. It's kind of in the middle, and most people believe it was probably more towards the time of the patriarchs, maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some people believe this was the first Old Testament book written, even before Genesis, that some of the content in there and the way that the writers are talking about this person named Job seem to suggest that this is a much older occurrence than where it sits in the Bible. And one of the other interesting things is Job is not an Israelite. He is not part of the people of God. He's from a land of Uz, which is just an amazing name for a country, but he's far from the east. And oftentimes, a lot of the books in the Old Testament have to deal with God's covenant with his people. And if you've been here through this Bible series, you realize it's kind of chronologically moved and thematically moved as God has followed his people out of Egypt, led them out, and been with him the whole time. And then you have this interjected story uh, of Job. Job is not part of the people of God. And some people think he's just kind of like a literary character, but I believe Ezekiel and James both mention him. And so I believe he's a real person. Now, the times that he's telling a story, some people had to probably gather parts of this story to make a cohesive book. But Job is really about the plight of one man, or at least it is on the surface, and what happens to him. So let's, let's, let's dive in a little bit about who Job is and make some comments along the way. So Job chapter 1, it says, There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity. Right off the bat, they want you to know as the reader that Job is a person of complete integrity. Now, we're going to spend a little while talking about Job and his story. There's some oddities here. There's some tragedies here. And right by the time you get tired of me talking about Job, you'll be like, what does this apply to the question that you asked in the beginning? God, why did you let this happen to me? We will get there at the end, I promise. So he was complete integrity. He feared God, which is the beginning of wisdom, as Solomon told us in the Proverbs. And he turns away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. So he has 10 kids. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, and these numbers are actually relevant in a few minutes, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. I don't know why the female part is in there, but that's pretty awesome. And very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he's this big, big deal. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with him. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. And some of us were like, would this make my children good? Like if I rose up early and I, you know, gave offerings to God, would they finally behave? But the kind of the narrator is, is showing how good of a guy Job is. Perfect in integrity, give sacrifices for his children. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. 
And that's probably one of the most biggest fears of all parents, especially if you're a Christian. Will they turn away from their faith? Is there anything I can do about it? This was Job's regular practice. So Job is a wealthy man. He's a person of influence. He, he fears God. He turns away from evil. He has perfect integrity. He gives sacrifices for his kids. He is a family man. And all along the lines of this, God is watching. So there's kind of two stories that are happening. You got Job and his family, and they're like blissfully ignorant of this next part. One day, the sons of God, or angels, you know, God, people that God has made uh, that are not like you and I, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. Now, there's an interesting theological distinction here that we'll we'll talk about. The Lord asked Satan, hey, where'd you come from? You weren't invited to this party. Where'd you get the invitation? From mourning through earth, from from roaming the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Now, this is a very interesting thing because we often think of God and his heavenly host and his angels as kind of over here, and then you got Satan who's over there. And then you have this idea is that Satan just walks right in. The adversary, the Satan. In fact, in Job, it has the definite article, the word the, before it, the Satan. The adversary, this may be the personal being of Satan himself. It may have been another minion of Satan, or it may just be the idea that God's adversary is Satan, and he's trying to do things against God. So this is kind of an interesting problem here, is that God and his angels are talking, and then in walks the evil guy. It's like Darth Vader coming to a staff meeting of like, you know, all of the, the rebels, right? He's like, like, hey, I'm here. You'll never get that reference anywhere. I'm so sorry I used that. But so Satan walks in and God doesn't kick him out. You know, he, he actually asks him a question. Hey, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant George? Hey, you're an evil dude. Like you, you know, you like doing evil stuff. No one else on the earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity. Now, God verifies what the narrator said. He's got perfect integrity from the lips of God himself. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. This is God's um, way of saying all the things about Job. He is a good guy. And then Satan answers, and he challenges. This is where the adversary challenges him. Does Job fear God for nothing? There's a reason that Job fears you and honors you. Haven't you placed a hedge around him, meaning protection, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and you strike everything he owns, he will curse you to your face. And Satan is essentially saying, look, this is a cyclical process that you started, God. You give him a blessing, which makes Job go, man, God is so good. It's awesome. I'm going to honor him, which pleases God. And because Job is pleased and is pleasing God, God goes, I want to bless that guy. So God blesses him. And Job goes, thank you so much for blessing me. I'm going to honor you. And it just continues to go this way. And so Satan, what he's doing, he's, he's challenging a few different things. He's challenging God's sense of justice. He's challenging God's character. And he's also saying that, look, if you didn't program or if you didn't like go down there and just bless your people, they would want nothing to do with you. That's Satan's challenge. He walks into God's throne room and he challenges God right away. He says, if you took everything, your people, they would leave you. And so God says this. He says, very well, Again, another interesting theological distinctive here. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, it's a bet. You know, it's kind of like what is happening here. Everything he owns is in your power. So God turns over or at least allows Satan some freedom. Very interesting here. Everything he owns is in your power. 
However, don't lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence to enact his plans. You know what happens next? Can you show the next slide? All the bad things happen to Job. All of them. Remember all those like oxen, like 10,000 oxen? I don't remember the number. There's a lot, lot of oxen. You know, 7,000 female donkeys. They all die. All of them. Everyone dies. His servants, like as he's down there, again, Job does not know that this is happening in heaven. He does not know that God and Satan have talked. And so Job is down there doing his kind of Job integrity things. And then one day a servant comes in. He says, hey, I just got here. I just ran. All your oxen are dead. No barbecue tonight. I'm so sorry. And then another guy comes in as he's speaking. Hey, just got here. Last guy to survive. All of your donkeys are dead. That's terrible. Another guy comes in and he says, hey, your kids, you know, your 10 kids, you know, they were having dinner at this house. A wind blew over their house, collapsed, killed all of them so bad. I'm so sorry. I know you liked like nine out of 10 of those kids. I'm so sorry that that happened. All of his livestock dies. All of his children die. And then Job stood up and he tore his robe and he shaves his head and he falls to the ground and he worships. Like, talk about a man of integrity, right? I'll tell you, most of us would not worship in this scenario. Worship probably would not be the first thing on our list. It'd be agony. It would be to seek help. It would be to collapse. It would be to stay in our rooms forever. It would probably be to curse God, honestly. And he falls to the ground and he worships and he says, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will lead this life. And the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the God giving and taking away. Because oftentimes, it's an abused phrase to try to help people get through mourning, or as a way for us to, to, to get through the lack of understanding of why bad things would happen to good people. We're going to talk about this next week. So put that on pause for a week. Can you do that? Is that cool? Okay. And then it says, throughout all of this, Job did not sin, and he did not blame God for anything. So God, God challenge to Satan is kind of redeemed right now. Job did not curse God to his face. He did not sin. He did not turn away from God. So now what happens? So Job chapter 2, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job again? You took everything away from him. No one else on earth is like him. He's a man of perfect integrity. Fear God, turn away from him. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. And Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. I took away a lot, but stretch out your hand. You strike his flesh and bones, and surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said, very well, again, I'm going to let you do this. He's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself, which is a horrible, horrible visual. And he sat among the ashes... And then his wife comes up to comfort him. And she says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Thank you so much. <laughs> like you can see I'm in agony right now. I was expecting you to come in with some tea, maybe, you know, something nice to eat and sit down next to me and put your arm around me and comfort me. I do not recommend trying this approach with your spouse, okay? Okay. Yeah, I know you stubbed your toe today. 
why don't you just curse God and die? You're like, wow, it's a little extreme, right? I mean, maybe she's in anguish, and maybe... And he, he responds in a way that you shouldn't respond either. Here's what he said. You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Also, not a recommendation to stay married, correct? But gender stuff here aside, you know, when we started this series, we said one of the biggest things that you never want to be called in the Bible is a fool. It's like the height of the epitome. Besides someone who does not honor God, and oftentimes they're synonymous, he says, you don't know what you're talking about. Not because you're a woman, not because you're my spouse, but because your perspective on who God is, is incorrect. And Job says this, he said, should we, it's so wise, should we only accept good from God and not adversity? Throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Like, should we just accept the good stuff and not the bad stuff? And then if it wasn't bad enough that his wife came and talked with him, his friends came over. Now, when Job's three friends came over, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, I mean, who names these kids, right? Zophar heard about all the adversary that had happened to him. Each of them came from his home. They met together to sympathize with him. And when they looked at him from a distance, because they're seeing him in anguish, he's got boils all over him. He's he shaved his head. He has torn his clothes. He probably hasn't eaten in a while. He is in anguish. They barely recognize him. And they wept aloud. They're sympathetic with him. And each man tore his own robe. They threw dust in the air in his head. And they sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights. But no one spoke a word because they saw his suffering was very intense. You know, there is something to be learned if we had some time here. Talk about this one. Is sometimes just your presence with someone is enough. They knew no words were going to bring his kids back. No words were going to bring all of his wealth back. No words were going to bring back his sanity. They just, they were with him, and they were in anguish with him, and they just were with him. But they knew they couldn't do anything to him, so they just sat, at least for a while. And as you continue to read on in the book of Job, for about 38 chapters, God is silent. And there are all these speeches that his friends make, and most of the time in their speeches, they're basically like Job, you had to have done something wrong. God would not have just punished you or allowed this to happen unjustly. Which brings us to our kind of practical part of today's message. That's kind of the story of Job, at least the first half. So I want to get to you, because this is applicable to you too. You know, there are three things that we want when bad things happen to good people. I don't know you, all of your stories are different, but I guarantee you want these three things. You're going to say yes to all three of them. It's going to be very easy for you to nod your head Three things that everyone wants, whether it's to you personally, whether it's to someone across the globe that you will never meet, but you care because what they are going through is so terrible, or it's a relative or a friend. You want these three things. The first one is an explanation. The second one is vindication. And the third one is salvation. Everyone wants these three things when bad things happen to good people. You want an explanation you want vindication, and you want salvation. Here's what all three of these mean. The explanation is this. I want to speak to God. I, I want him to explain himself to me. And this is essentially what, what Job does a lot of in this story, is he's, he's kind of crying out to God. You know, we sing songs about that. Most of us don't cry out to God unless we're in intense anguish. And Job does that. And he kind of demands to speak with the manager, Right? He's like, God, how could you do this? And here's the questions he probably asked him when we would ask. 
this is, you got three approaches. You can appeal to God first. I want an explanation. You can appeal to God. What's the reason? What's the purpose? Why me? Why us? Do you even care? Like when good things happen or bad things happen to good people, do you care? Do you see me? Why would you do this? And it's an appeal. You want an explanation. You want to speak with God. It's the, probably the time in your life, even for an atheist, that they would approach God in some form of prayer to say, will you answer? If you do exist and if you do care about your people, as those Christians say, you need to come and answer me. And that's essentially what Job is saying. Even though he has faith in God, he kind of demands an audience. God, I am without fault. Explain this to me. The second approach under, underneath the explanation is this. You can accuse God. Hey, you did this. Where were you? A good God wouldn't let this happen. You just watched and did nothing. A lot of us take this approach, especially if it's the loss of someone before their time, or at least before we would like them to go. You did nothing, or you caused it. Many people have lost their faith over this. God, not only did you do nothing, you're responsible. It's part of the reason that people have this idea that God doesn't even exist. There's this philosophical kind of three-part thing. It says, if, you know, if God exists, he is all good. Bad things happen to people, and God allows them. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And there's a fallacy in there that says that a good God would not allow bad things to ever happen. That's not true. He does. Scripture acknowledges it. In the story of Job, he does it. And it's a tension we have to live with. And there's a third one, is that you can abandon God. Hey, you're not worth following. You're not really good. You don't even exist. You're nothing. You're a myth. And I'm done with you. Three approaches to the explanation. Tell me why. We can accuse God. We can appeal to him and say, hey, why did this happen? We can accuse him. Even as we are trying to seek him, we can accuse him. And then the third one here is abandon. Eventually, you get to a place where if you're not helped or you're not explained for long enough, you go, I want nothing to do with you. It's a dangerous place to be. So the first thing we want is we want an explanation. The second one is we want, um, oh, I'm sorry, there's a wise, I wrote this message, I should know what comes next. <laughs> the wise person, here's what you can do. The wise person appeals to God and accepts the good he gives them and grows closer to him through adversity. You know, this is this weird principle. There are a lot of principles in the Bible, but this is one of the principles that I have confidence of saying is that it is one of the most important ones. The best things that have ever happened to you in humanity have happened through suffering. You don't believe me? Did Jesus have a great time on the cross? I mean, he was in anguish, and he knew he was going to suffer. And it, Scripture says he went joyfully and willingly because he knew that his suffering would produce blessing for the world, ultimately through life. Suffering does something to our faith that no other thing can do. Most of us would love to just say, hey, could I just have all the good stuff? And it's really easy to forget God when everything's going well. And I'm not saying God commits evil or harms you intentionally, but I am saying is that when things come across, and even sometimes in this story where God allows something to happen, it's because ultimately that suffering is designed to push you towards him. 
So a wise person appeals to God, doesn't accuse him, doesn't abandon, and then grows closer to him through adversity. The suffering is what draws you closer. So number two, the second thing we want is vindication. I don't deserve this. She didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve this. They didn't deserve this. God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you allow that natural disaster to happen? Why did you allow them to get hit by a car? Why did you allow them to die early? Why did you allow them to get cancer? Why did you allow them to get murdered? Why did you allow this stuff to happen? They did not deserve this, and I don't deserve this. And the key question we must answer ourselves here is this. Do we live in a just and fair world? And most of you would probably say, no, we don't. You know, one of the greatest things I realized as I was going from being an atheist to a Christian is that I did a lot of blaming of God and not enough blaming on people. You know, most of the atrocities that happen in life are committed by people. I always held God accountable. I never held people accountable. And I had to switch that to go, maybe, maybe God's justice Maybe God's grace is needed for this world because we can't behave ourselves and we harm one another. And ultimately, he is just. But if you look at this question, do we live in a just and fair world, and you step out of your house, you probably go, no, we don't. But we'd love it to be that way. In fact, we'd love it to be something like this. You get what you deserve. It's also called the retribution principle. It's kind of a technical term there, the retribution principle. And it's an interesting principle because it's only one-sided. So here's, here's kind of how Satan talked about God. He said, you are giving him blessing, or he is righteous because you are blessing him. And he kind of puts it, Satan does, and he accuses God of his justice, and he accuses him of not really making the playing field fair says, you bless him, therefore he is righteous. But the retribution principle, again, the technical term or a different way to talk about it is all in scripture, is that generally speaking, God wants to bless people who are righteous. But the corollary to that is not the same, that all righteous people will be blessed all of the time. Or to put it in a different words, that they will only be blessed. It's all throughout scripture where God looks to and fro and he says, I want people who will honor me in my name. And if you are righteous and if you seek me out, I want to bless you. But it doesn't mean that anyone who is suffering is not righteous. It doesn't mean that. And here's the problem with you get what you deserve. A lot of us like this principle because it seems to be something that's within our control. If I am good, I will get good things. Bad people get bad things. Good people get good things. We like that principle because it puts us within our control. But here's the problem about getting what you deserve. We talk with our kids about this all the time. You don't want to get what you deserve. You want to get better than you deserve. You should want to get better than you deserve. You don't want to just simply say, hey, I put in X, I should get out Y, but if life gives me Z, this, this is bad. Because righteous, good people do suffer. And it blows this principle out of the water because we go, wait a minute, I thought we'd get what we deserve. I'm good, I will get good things. I'm righteous, I will have the good things from God, like blessing. And the bad people, the people who don't honor God, they deserve something that we don't get. 
But here's the thing. You do not want to get what you deserve. You want to get better than you deserve. And the Christian faith is essentially a story about this. We could say it this way. You know, Jesus received the suffering we deserved, and we received the blessing that he deserved. He, he never deserved to suffer. He never deserved to be punished. He was the most righteous, perfect person imaginable. And even he experienced suffering. Even he experienced evil at the hands of people. He even couldn't escape a bad thing happening to not only the good person, but the only good person. The wise person, we can say this, the wise person knows that the world isn't just, but God is, and lives with the hope that God will give them better than they deserve someday. This is what helps us get through our current trials. Very exciting, I know. And the third one is salvation. So we got explanation, we got vindication, we got salvation. Essentially, we want the suffering to end. We want a time if the suffering and the pain goes away. And for some of you who have experienced intense suffering, you know that it never really leaves. It may get better, it may get worse at times, but you're never free. Except for someday you will be. Ultimately, when Jesus comes back and he restores all things, in Revelation it says that there will be more tears, there will be no mourning, there will only be joy. You know, when bad things happen to us, we tend to focus on the moment. The moment we lost the person, the moment we lost everything, the moment that our, our health changed, the moment that our mind changed, the moment that our life changed, we tend to focus on the moment, and we've lost perspective on life. We've lost all the good things that have happened or the potential for good things to happen in front of us because we focus on the moment. It just narrows everything down when we suffer to the moment that it happens. But suffering... Suffering drives us to the God we hope will bring all suffering to an end and bring never-ending good. It's part of the reason that Christianity is so powerful in terms of a force in the world, because it answers this question like no other question. Why do bad things happen to good people? You could ask the question in a reverse way. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because Romans says, all have fallen short in the glory of God. You know, if you ask that question in reverse, we should be surprised that God blesses us at all. I don't know your own personal life, but I can tell you ain't a good person. And I know how I know that? Because I've seen your Facebook page. No, I'm just kidding. It's mostly because Jesus has told us, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Which I don't know if you know this, but none of us are Jesus, which means that all of us aren't good. So we should be incredibly, incredibly blessed to think that God would give us bad people without him any good thing at all. You know, the wise person tries to take an eternal perspective on everything. A wise person doesn't just say, why did this bad thing happen? They look forward to say, what is the ultimate good thing that will happen to those who follow God? You know, God in this story is silent for about 37 chapters. Job and his friends talk. They make all these elaborate speeches. And ultimately, God finally says something in chapter 38. It says, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said this. 
Now, I've gone over my time today. So, next week, we're going to talk about how God gives and takes away. I did warn you in front that this was a two-part message. I did, okay? So, a couple things real quick. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. Um, if you've never been to a family meeting here, I highly hope you come to it. We're going to talk a little bit about the future stuff that's happening in our church, some of it um, just in the immediate future. In the fall, you're going to want to come to hear that. You'll get a financial update. Uh, we're going to give some ministry updates. If you've never been to a family meeting, highly encourage you to do it. It's under an hour. I try to keep these under an hour. You can go off and get lunch and stuff like that. So hope you do that. And many of you have asked for a membership class. We're going to do that the following Wednesday, August 23rd. Membership for us is being fully engaged with the mission that Jesus has given our church. We hope you'll do both of those things. Let me pray for you, and I'll upset you and leave, let you go. Father, thank you so much for the first half of this story. There's so much we can learn from the book of Job. But ultimately, there's more that we can learn about God's character, about who he is, about how you give and you take away, and about how ultimately you are not only just, but gracious. Thank you for giving us better than what we deserve in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much for being here.